We saw last week in 1 Peter that Peter addresses this letter, this epistle, just another name for letter, for a group of exiles was the name of elect or chosen exiles that had been scattered abroad from Jerusalem. Some of you may remember the map from last, from last Sunday. So they had been scattered abroad from Jerusalem. There was persecution that was mounting in Jerusalem. It was more severe in what we know, now know as modern-day Turkey in that area north of the Taurus Mountains where many of these people had gone. Peter then writes a letter to them. Just as a little side note, Turkey just celebrated 100 years as a country. So it's fairly modern. But in this time, there are all different types of regions. We, you see that in the first verse there, the different names of the cities. And Peter addressed them as chosen or elect exiles. Then we see through the rest of the document, through the rest of the, of the book of 1 Peter, then really, it's, it's all, I'm going to kind of call it a profile document. Or in essence, he begins to help these believers understand in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of, of not only being exiles, but actually feeling that way, that you're not at home, that you don't have the same language, that everybody doesn't appreciate what you believe about Jesus Christ and all these different things. In the midst of that, I want to give you some instruction of how to live, of what your profile should be as this type of believer in that scenario. Now in 2023, we understand part of this, not to the same extent. Um, it is, it's not, uh, to my knowledge, we haven't had recently anybody martyred for their faith in the United States of America, but certainly around the world that still happens. Amen. And it's extremely disturbing, it's extremely saddening, but yes, here in our nation, we experience more and more and more just the daily grind of, wow, you believe that? You follow who? You read what book? You do what on Sunday morning? You're crazy. You're a fanatic. In fact, I, I just, uh, my dad subscribes to this magazine, uh, and I will a caveat, this is extremely liberal uh, but there's some very interesting pieces just to keep up with, with culture. But front page on the week, a true believer, uh, new speaker of the house, you know, Johnson. I don't know Johnson personally, Speaker Johnson. I, I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't know exactly what he believes about Christ. It claims that he's a, a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ. I don't know that for sure. But I find it interesting that on the front page and then an article begins to detail why he's crazy. Why he shouldn't be the Speaker of the House. Why, why he's a danger to the democracy of our nation. And in part because of the, some of the stances that he's taken on things like same-sex marriage. And uh, things like abortion and, and, and issues like that. That we, at least in those points, I don't know all the other theology that he holds. But at least in those points, we would say, yeah, that's, that's biblical. That God's design for marriage is a man and a woman for life. And only in that way do they enjoy the love and the beauty of marriage that should reflect Christ in the church that God designed. It's not that we're trying to be mean. It's not trying to be ugly. And I hope One Hope Church, uh, that at least you've been around long enough that you understand anybody is welcome to come through the doors and sit here in the service. Anybody. But part of the love of Christ that we will show is to be able to open God's word and says, Although you may have uh, formed this pattern in your life or you may have adopted this or this, God's design is different and much more beautiful and fulfilling than maybe what you know. And we want to lead you in that to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But all that to say, this, 
This could be any one of us. And this could be, this happens in classrooms, it happens on ball teams, it happens in the community, where as believers, we're looked at as, well, you're, you're strange. You're, you're, little, you know, you're a little messed up. So how, what's the profile? How do we act? How do we live? How do we show uh, the grace? In fact, we finished last week with an interesting phrase that can be somewhat confusing. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says. And he's directing that to the believers of that time. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I would suspect that most of us, as you're in here this morning, most of us go like, I'd like more grace. I'll take more peace. But how does that happen? I mean, you can't go to a vending machine. You can't just like buy grace and peace. And so I don't think any of us would pass on receiving more grace and peace. So how exactly does this happen? The very next thing Peter does then is point to a person, Jesus Christ. To a person who is full of grace and truth. We're going to see that verse in a minute. And also to a person who Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, He, Jesus Christ, is our peace. So I want, to, I want you to look at some of those, those verses that we see. First of all, Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now specifically, Paul is referencing the, the Jews, the believing Jews, those who did accept Christ as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. So he's saying he's made us both one, the believing Jews, but also the believing Gentiles. And then he goes, goes on to say, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ is our peace. Next we see in John 1.14, a little bit more about grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a specific reference to Jesus Christ. The logos, the word, the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And then Titus chapter 2, 11, this is beautiful. For the grace of God has appeared. And then notice the next phrase. Bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, another reference to Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that passage and some other verses before and after uh, in the message that makes it very clear. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. So all of this, may grace and peace be multiplied in, in you. Peter says, look to Christ. Understand that in him you find more grace. Understand that in him you find the peace that you're looking for. So first of all, what are, what's the reason for living hope? Well, reason singular can all be summed up in the name Jesus Christ. That's the reason for living hope. But I want to explain this a little bit more using kind of a soccer illustration, okay? Maybe it's because it's fresh on my mind. Michael had another game yesterday um, and, and fun, and I didn't throw my hat down in anger this time. I, I was tempted. I, honestly, I was. I almost grabbed him, like, nope, not going to do it today. But he won the game, excited, or they won the game, exciting. But soccer is becoming more and more popular in our nation. It's extremely popular around the world. It's kind of the world sport, football. But in our nation, it's becoming more popular as well. Worldwide, there's about 240 million people that play soccer. And about 3 billion people 
follow soccer. So those of you who think the Super Bowl, you know, is big stuff because of how many people watch the Super Bowl game, it doesn't, it doesn't compare at all to how soccer or football is viewed and watched and followed uh, around the world. So what's one of the best ways, if you have a young soccer player, boy or girl, what's one of the best ways to motivate that individual to become a good soccer player? Do you start and say, okay, these are some drills, and you, you kind of do these drills, and you, you dribble, and you go around the cones, and you watch some technical soccer skill videos on YouTube, and you, you do these things, and that is going to give you the inspiration to become a phenomenal soccer player? Probably not. Most young soccer players are going to think, man, this is boring. What's so fun about this? But what is extremely motivating to many of these young players is to see some of the professional players play soccer. They see the beautiful kicks. They see that awesome defense. They see some phenomenal players play soccer. We, we noticed this in our time in Brazil where boys and girls you know, in the, in the streets, any level part of the street would become a soccer field. They throw down their, their flip-flops. That's the goal. So they begin to play you know, soccer on the street as the cars or motorcycles come through. They jump off. As soon as they're passed, they, the soccer game resumes. Why? Because these kids have seen professional Brazilian soccer players not only play in their nation, but then go to Europe and play in the World Cup and play for the Brazilian team. And they're inspired to think, that could be me one day. I could be born into poverty. I could be born in this and this and that. But if I'm good enough, I could go at, break out of all of that and I could be as famous as, let's look at some of these guys. Who are, who, anybody recognize these guys? Neymar and Vinny. Or he's, I mean, he's even on a nickname basis. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's good old Vinny. I mean, you know. So Neymar and Vinicius Jr., two of the best soccer players, considered to be two of the best soccer players for Brazil. So kids all over the nation of Brazil and around the world watch these two guys play. Now, for Owen, these two guys really aren't the best. The next one probably is to him. Who, who would this be? The next guy is, who's that? I asked Owen this morning, he was in the hallway, he was kicking the soccer ball around a little bit. I said, who's your favorite player? He said, Messi. I mean, like, his, his response was like, who else? I mean, Messi's, and he even said this, he's the greatest of all time. So Messi has been watched again by thousands and thousands, really millions of young soccer players thinking maybe one day I could be as good as him. My cousin uh, Austin began to play soccer as a little uh, as a little kid and honestly didn't think he was going to become very good huh my nephew yes yeah, my nephew sorry so Austin's my nephew Kim gives me these little notes in the you know he's like <laughs> David say this okay this is your next point do this all right so Austin my nephew began to play soccer as a little kid and honestly I didn't think Austin was to become very good because as a boy he was small he wasn't very aggressive I mean he was kind of the boy is like you know Austin Get in there, man. I mean, you know, do something. But as Austin began to watch soccer, and this is one of his favorite players, I think it is his favorite player, as he watched Messi play, that inspired him to practice. I'll never forget going to visit my brother Stephen in Greenville, South Carolina, and in a small backyard, he had put a full-size soccer goal for Austin to practice soccer. Austin played all through high school. He went and played uh, for the society teams at Bob Jones and did a great job and became a very good soccer player in part because he was inspired by some of the soccer greats like Messi. When Austin found out that Messi was going to come and be part of the Inter team of Miami, 
He immediately bought tickets to go to the Miami United, Atlanta United game last month or two, or two months ago in September because he wanted to see Messi play in person. So he bought a ticket for himself, for his dad, and for my, for my dad. And so the three of them were going to go. Some of you may know, though, that just about 24, 36 hours before the game, rumors started to spread. Is Messi even going to show up? Is he even going to be there? But by that time, the majority of the 71,000 plus people had already purchased their tickets, many of them to see this guy play in person, and he didn't even show up. So Messi, the day of the game, he posted on his uh, Instagram or social media, eating pizza and opening a pizza box in Miami. What a downer. But all that, to, all that to show, CNN interviewed some people at the game, how they were frustrated. They had paid over $600 per ticket, tickets that would no, normally go for $40. They paid $600 per ticket because they wanted to see Messi play. He didn't even show. All that to shows, though, this point. If you want to be great as a soccer player, watch the best. And the 71,000 plus people that went to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium had that in mind. As believers, Peter doesn't start out here and say, okay, let me, let, me, let me talk you through some drills of the Christian faith. Let me talk through some checklists that you need to do. Let me tell you how many you know, verses of the Old Testament you need to read each day. Let me tell you where you need to be on Saturdays or Sundays in your, in your time of worship. Peter starts out with this. Look to Jesus Christ. Be inspired by him. So the reason for living hope we see next then that you are a recipient of God's great mercy. Later in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, he says this, For to, to this you have been called, because why? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And that's what Peter's doing. He's trying to say, he, he doesn't even say, listen, I'm coming up with a plan to try to relieve your suffering I'm coming up with a plan to, you know, to encourage you and we're going to have some retreats for you. No, he says, look to God, look to the great mercy, look to Jesus Christ right now and that will be your encouragement. You're a recipient of God's great mercy. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an exclamation point there. So Peter starts, he says, blessed, and in the original it would just be, bless the God and Father. English, we add kind of the B for a little bit of the understanding, but it's in essence, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is worthy of our praise. Why? According to his great mercy. And Peter focuses on praising God right from the start. He could have come up with some other plans. Um, you know, obviously they didn't have WhatsApp and FaceTime, but he could have said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write you a letter every month and we're going to send some representatives to, to encourage you. No, he, he said, look to God because of his great mercy of what he's done for you. Now, if, if I feel like that I have earned my salvation, if I feel like that I can be good enough to kind of make my way into heaven, then, then this is, I, I promise you, when the going gets tough, when you find out that you or a loved one has cancer, when you're in a bad car accident, when your educational studies don't, look, don't go like they, you want them to, when these things happen, if you think you've done it, your strength alone will not be enough. But if you look to God and say, I was a recipient of God's mercy, he gave this to me, not because I deserved it, not because I've been good enough, but because God loved me so much. 
That is what helps us to get through when the going gets tough and when life happens. You are also, we see that you're a recipient of God's great mercy, but you're also born again to a living hope. To a living hope. The passage continues. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so last week we already saw that most importantly, you know, how how did this happen? How are we born again? We saw last week that most importantly, this is God's plan for for all. The grace has appeared uh, unto men that salvation would be offered. But for sure, those of us who are believers and followers in Christ, we can know, man, this from eternity past, this was God's plan for me. No matter what I may be facing, no matter where I may be at, I'm referred to, along with those believers in Peter, as chosen as the elect, exile, stranger, foreigner. It's part of God's plan. But more specifically, you are born again to a living hope. Why? Because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at every one of those three words. Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Lord. Master. Ruler. When used together with the name Jesus, it expresses the truth that Jesus is God. I want to encourage you at some point to look in John chapter 20. We don't have uh, time right now to, to go into this as deep as I had hoped to. But in John chapter 20, Jesus had already given his life on the cross. He had been buried. He rose again. He had already appeared to the disciples. The disciples, to most of the disciples, the disciples told Thomas, Thomas, uh, Jesus appeared to us and Thomas says, hey, I'm not going to believe until I can put my fingers you know, in, in his scars and I can put my hand on his side. Jesus then appears to the disciples again when Thomas is present. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, you know, he doesn't go in and say, Thomas, you fool, you idiots. You've been with me for three years. You've heard the prophecies and this is your response. He says, Thomas, Show me your fingers. He directed his fingers to the scars in his hands. He says, Thomas, give me your hand. And he pulls his hand and puts it on his side. And Jesus is basically saying, Thomas, you doubted, but I love you. And I want you to see that this is true. And this means all the more to me in the past couple of years as I've seen many of the students that come to Kennesaw, Georgia, from thousands of miles away, and there's questions, there's wonderings, there's, there's, there's ideas of like, what is this? Is this like America's religion? Who is Christ all about? Is this really a, a, a real thing or are these people crazy? What is this all about? I'm gonna, I just want to tell you, Christ gets you. He understands you and he loves you and he wants you with your doubts to continue to, to search and to continue to listen and have exposure to, to God's word, which is a living word. And as he did with Thomas that day, Christ will continue to show himself to you as you seek, as you respond to the drawing of God in your life. Do that, I pray. It's worth it. So Jesus did that, and Thomas' response is so important when he says, my Lord and my God, he says to Jesus Christ. Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not say, oh, no, Thomas, don't call me Lord, Master, Ruler. Oh, no, Thomas, don't call me God. I'm just a creation of God. No, Jesus accepts the worship because Jesus is 
part of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, and he accepted that worship from him. And Thomas was saying, my master, God, my Lord, and my God. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Those were the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 10 and verse 36, as for the word that has sent me, that he sent me to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, Peter said to Cornelius, um, as, uh, as witnessed to him in Acts chapter 10. In Romans 10, Paul made it very clear that as a believer, as a person comes to faith in Christ, understanding that Jesus is master, understanding that Jesus is Lord, is part of that. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, master. Next, Jesus. Jesus. A, a name typically or perhaps is maybe the most common that we're familiar with. As I was in a shoe store just uh, two days ago and I was uh, trying to find something I, I needed, I thought I needed something to go to Indonesia. I found something else to work that I, that I had uh, in the garage. But anyway, as a guy was looking at some shoes, some, some boxes, you know, fell. And what did I hear come out of his mouth? This word. Not because he was praising, not because he was worshiping, he was frustrated. And this is unfortunately a common expression that we hear. But here we, we are looking at a person, the person of Jesus Christ. It comes from two root words in the original language uh, that together means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, a reference to God Almighty of the Old Testament. And we see this even kind of spelled out for us in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. It says, she, Mary, will bear a son and you should call his name Jesus. This is an angel telling Joseph what's going to happen to the one that he is engaged to, he's betrothed to, and is basically helping Joseph to understand she hasn't been unfaithful, she hasn't been immoral. This is a, a, a work of God in her. It says, so she will bear a son and you should call his name Jesus. And then listen, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yahweh saves. The Lord, Jesus, and then Christ. Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. Christos is the equivalent of a Hebrew word that is uh, Mashiach, which that's what comes from Messiah. Both of those, Christos, Messiah, or, or Mashiach, gives the idea of the anointed one, the chosen one. That's why you, you talk about the, we talk about the prophecies of the coming Messiah, of the coming chosen one, the anointed one. So Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's basically saying Jesus is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Notice in John chapter 20 and verse 30, John kind of gives a commentary on much of what he has written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 30 of John 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed one, that you may believe that Jesus is the chosen one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. That's why these things have been written. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right, so let's look at it all summarized. Next slide. The Lord, Master, Ruler, God, Jesus, Yahweh saves, Christ, Messiah, or chosen one. We are born again to a living hope because of who Jesus is, but also because Jesus lives. Because Jesus lives. 1 Peter 1, 3, once again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So through the, the resurrection, because Jesus Christ is living, he died, he was buried, but he didn't stay buried. That's why we celebrate Easter, the Passover, Jesus being resurrected again to life. There is a whole sector of law called probate law. So there's probate courts, there's probate lawyers. And if someone dies, especially if they die without a will, but even if they die with a will and perhaps don't have their trust fully you know, built out, their, their belongings, their possessions then go through a process, the probate process. If someone makes a promise... And whether they have a will or not, as long as that person is living, then it's much easier for that promise to be carried out. Once a person dies, if it's not documented well, then because the person has died, it doesn't matter what they said verbally a whole lot in a court of law, and then it goes through the whole probate process, and it could get messy really fast. Jesus is living we have both. I mean, we have both the written document that says, yes, you know, we have this that is the New Testament or the New Covenant. But beyond that, we still have the one who promises it all. He's still living. He's the one that makes it true. He's the one that makes it valid because he is still living today because Jesus lives. So we have been born again to a living hope, but then we've also been given an eternal inheritance an eternal inheritance. Shortly after my father-in-law died and he died without a will and we experienced firsthand how messy and exactly how um, um, heartbreaking that process can be to go through probate, um, we began to think, you know, Lord, help us to get uh, our things in order so that our kids, if something happened to the two of us, this doesn't happen to them. And we went to Wells Fargo and talked to the banker there and said, you know, we want to put our girls uh, on our account, on our, on our checking account. And then later, once we got our trust done, we did the same thing with our trust. We listed our trust as the paid on death so that if Kim and I were both, you know, if we both die together, whatever's left in our checking account, whether it's $10 or $10,000, and it's closer to ten right now, but whatever's in our account, that's going to go to who's listed as paid on death. And the banker said, you know, it's interesting and it's very important that you're doing this because we've had people come in and they know that their relative, their loved one, maybe a dad, maybe a grandma, someone has a safety deposit box here in the bank, but we are legally not allowed to open it until it's gone through the probate process and we have the legal authorization to open it for that individual. We can't even open it. 
She said, and how heartbreaking it was one time when this lady went through the probate process, paid all the fees, and finally came with great expectation, and I opened the safety deposit box for her. She had expected great you know, money or jewelry, and it was completely empty. There was nothing. Nothing. I'm thankful that that is not the inheritance that we were given in 1 Peter. We are given an eternal inheritance. We see that, first of all, in 1 Peter 1, 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If you doubt that things around you perish, look in the refrigerator of any of these college students and there will probably be something that has green on it or is, is perishing. It's a, a running joke in our house. If something comes from my dad's refrigerator, we ask him, is it expired yet? I mean, like, what's the expiration date? Because, you know, he just doesn't eat as much as our family of seven does. And so things perish. Things go bad. What around you doesn't perish? Think about that for a minute. What around you doesn't perish? What around you cannot be corrupted or defiled or tainted? What around you uh, does not fade? Unfortunately, I'm going to remind you, now thankfully we have a stark contrast to our internal inheritance, but what we see around us, it all fades. It all can be tainted. Every bit of it can perish. This became so vivid to me on one of the trips that uh, I took with two of my daughters to India and as we were driving outside of Delhi. Look at these two images. What mountain is that? Trash mountain. All of that is trash. Next image. So one on the left-hand side, they just continue to go higher and higher and higher with tractors and dump trucks and just dump more and more and more. And then on the right-hand side, you can see below, I mean, how it's just become a trash mountain. What a vivid picture that anything we buy or work for or long for eventually is going to end up in a place kind of like that. It's just trash. But yet we see in 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I have my favorite t-shirts, and so I wear them a lot. I don't have a lot of t-shirts, but I have, I have my favorite ones, and so I wear those t-shirts a lot. And then eventually, those t-shirts begin to get little holes in them, kind of around the collar, usually under the arm. I don't know why, but anyway, they get some the holes around them. So what happens then? Usually, my wife or daughters generally say, Dad, don't wear that, that one out anymore, okay? So don't wear that now in public. So then that becomes my sleep t-shirt. So I wear those to sleep in because they're extremely comfortable. And so I like those shirts and I, I wear those to sleep in. But then at some point, Kim will say, David, I mean, just, can you give that one up? I mean, can you like put that one aside? And so I put that one aside, but then it becomes a work shirt because it's, I'm not quite ready to get rid of it yet. So then I work in it and, and it's like got built-in air conditioning. It comes through the holes. And so I work in my work shirt and it's very comfortable. But then at some point, I'm embarrassed too much to even wear it for a work shirt. And then I tear it up into little bitty rags that can be used for rags. And then at some point, even as a rag, I have to part with it and see it go in the trash because it has faded it's no good. But we are born to an eternal 
inheritance. Notice what Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that is extremely important. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Remember Peter saying something similar? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of what? Of eternal life. This is is an amazing passage. You're going to look a little bit more into this, into the growth groups, that through these few verses, you see the work of God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. The Trinity is all through these few verses that give us an eternal inheritance. But beyond that, it is a guarded inheritance. It's a guarded inheritance. Your inheritance, if you're a believer of, of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of him, your inheritance of eternal life with Christ is secure. It's the safest place in the universe. There's no armored truck that's safer. There's no big vault that's any safer. There is no safer place in the universe than, than what we have as we see here. Your inheritance of eternal life with Christ is secure. 1 Peter 1.4 To an inheritance that is, and at the end of that phrase says, kept in heaven for you. Safest place forever. But not only is our inheritance secure, notice next, you, as the heir of eternal life, you are kept secure. You are kept guarded. 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power, did you get that? Who by God's power? Not what. Now, it's not talking anymore about the inheritance of itself, but it says who by God's power, you can put your name there if you know Christ, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is extremely assuring to me that as through God's abundant mercy, not because I deserved it, but because uh, God saved me, I've been born again, my inheritance is secure that can never be ripped from me, it can never be taken away, but then I am secure in him. Um, John, we see this passage so clearly in John chapter 10, it says in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Simple illustration I think we can all grasp pretty clearly but from an experience of my childhood that some of you I think I've told about, this, this comes to mind often. I, as, a, as a young boy, we were in Wisconsin visiting my great-grandparents uh, in, in their the rest home there, the facility. And there was a huge, not huge, but a big enough hill near where they were that we could go snow tubing. But at the bottom of the hill, there was a creek that ran all along kind of the bottom of that hill, and it was partially frozen. My cousin was with us that day, and my cousin was not known to be the most obedient um, or, or smartest kid around. So my dad, who was out tubing with us, said his name and said, be careful, don't mess around around the creek. If you fall in the creek, you can die. Okay, so how did I interpret that? Fall in the creek is death. 
You fall in the creek, you die. And that's just what happens. Stay away from the creek. Creek, partially frozen, it's death. We had a great time tubing. We go up the mountain, tube down, go up, tube down. Finally, we get tired. We're going to go in for lunch, get a little bit warm. Stephen's on this side, who just, he's six years older than I am, so just turned 53 yesterday. But Stephen's on, my, on one side of the creek, and he's going to help kind of get me across the creek, and my dad's on the other side. Dad has sacrificed for us in many different ways. I have, I have a lot of trust in my dad later in life. I'll never forget him throwing off his watch and shoes, jumping in the ocean in Jacksonville, Florida, to try to help my brother and I, who were, we'd been caught in a riptide. He goes out. So I, I know dad wants what's best for me. And even as a young kid, I knew, you know, okay, dad's on the other side. I'm pretty safe. Steven's here, six years older. He's stronger. Dad's on the other side. But as I kind of lunge across Dad gets my hand, but then he catches the glove, and the glove comes off, and what happens? I fall into the creek of death. And so I begin to scream like crazy because in my mind, I've fallen into the partially frozen creek. It's just seconds before my life is no more. But to my surprise, I'm still breathing. I'm still seeing things, and they yank me out of the creek. They rush me inside. They strip all the clothes off me and get, get me warm, and I'm still here today. So I survived the death creek. But one thing that is extremely assuring to me, that spiritually, I will never slip out of my Father's hand, God the Father's hand. Never. I will never, never come a day where it's like, you know, God the Father's, oh, David, man, almost. You almost made it. If I, as a true believer in Jesus Christ, although I certainly am not perfect and there will be times in my life that I will sin, I will fail God, he, he will be disappointed in a sense in me, but his love is constant. And we see in this passage that I and you who are a believer in Christ are kept and guarded in heaven secure because of God's work in your life. You as the heir of eternal life are kept secure. Notice how Paul puts this in closing. This is, I think, a beautiful passage. We often think of Paul as the great church planner, the missionary. Then, man, he is—you know—he he did so many things. He did persecute the church, but then he became the persecuted. But then, notice how he describes God's work in this keeping and guarding work in his life, his life in Second Timothy four eighteen. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then he just ends in praise and he says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning?